So one of my wife's best friends is a mother of four boys, and say a prayer for her. She sent a meme to my wife the other day, which and we and we have two daughters, and she said this: um, the only thing more exhausting than a mom of a boy who doesn't stop moving is the mom of a girl who doesn't stop talking. And boy, that is where we are at in parenting my three-year-old Jerry. From sunup to sundown, she just will not stop talking. It's a running narrative about everything. And if she doesn't understand what's going on, doesn't tell you what's going on, she asks one question. That question is, why? Why? Why this? Why that? I don't know. Because God created. There you go. That just jumps all the steps. God made it so. Okay? Why, why, why? I mean, this girl, she just goes and yaps and yaps and yaps. And um, uh, we were playing in a room the other day, and we were, I was playing with Barbies, and the game was, I had Elsa and Anna, okay? And she wanted me to take the Elsa dress off of Elsa and put it on Anna, and the Anna dress off of Anna and put it on Elsa. So I would do that. And then she wanted me to put them back. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. The whole time telling me a story. And um, I don't know if you've put a clothes on a Barbie recently, it's torture. It's awful. They, their limbs don't bend. And so you're like putting the dress on her. And Anna has these boots on, okay? And she, it does not, she's not built for Elsa's dress. And so we're trying to put these boots on Elsa's dress. I mean, it's just a whole, I mean, you probably didn't know all the details about Elsa and Anna and the clothing you would learn about at church today. But it's true. And so I'm sitting here doing this. I'm trying to focus and pay attention to getting the clothes on Elsa and Anna and listen to Jerry's story. And she's kind of yapping and talking. And finally, I just, I'm not very good at multitasking because I'm a man. And so I like tune her out and just, I concentrate on putting the dress on. And all of a sudden, finally, her face comes in between me and the toy. Why aren't you talking? Why aren't you talking? And I wanted to say, my flesh, I wanted to say, because I can't get a word in. But I didn't. And so what I said was, I'm focusing. She looked at me and she was like, focus? What's, what's focusing? I don't know if you've had a philosophical conundrum recently in your life or a dialogue. Try to explain focus to a three-year-old. It's not easy. It's like, uh, you're keeping your eye on the prize. That doesn't work. Uh, you're concentrating on one thing at a time. What's concentrate? So this happens over the next several weeks of me tuning her out, not listening to her while I'm trying to play and do the different things. And then finally, one time at dinner, it comes kind of to this head where we're going to do dinner. And uh, I say, hey, Jerry, I need, she's playing with her little kitchen toys at her little fake kitchen in the, in the kitchen area. And I said, Jerry, I need you to pick up your toys. It's time for dinner. Nothing. Who do you think you are, you little brat? Jerry, I need you to pick up your toys now and go to the dinner table. Nothing. Are you kidding me? So I go over and I put my face in between her face and the toy. Jerry, can you hear me? She said, Dad, I'm focusing. That's Jerry. To focus or not to focus? That is the question. What does it mean to focus? To have your eye on the prize, to concentrate on one thing at a time, the center of attention, right? 
Because the reality is this series that we're in over the next several weeks is all about this idea of focus. Because we are an unfocused culture. We are. That's the culture that we live in. It's a distracted culture. In the book Essentialism by Greg McCowan, he talks about kind of where this has come from. He says, first of all, we have too many choices as a culture. Like never before, we have choices about everything. Anyone tired of all the choices? I cannot stand off making the choices, especially when it comes to my wardrobe. I don't know what goes with what. I wear gray with gray all the time. And Monica's like, "Sorry, you look like an elephant. Stop. Like... <laughs> You gotta match. Don't wear the same color. Like, don't just do gall gray. I'm like, I, I need a. Lay, I want a. I want. A, this is not in the sermon. I want a numbering system for colors. Okay, that threes go with fives and sevens. Okay, and that's it. And I just everything's labeled with numbers. I don't know. I don't understand. Anyway, sorry. I'll get back to the sermon. Too many choices. For instance, after the service is over, there's a question all of you're going to ask the person that you came with, and what is it? Where do you want to go eat lunch? Right. Choices. Good thing you live in Joplin with range line and every chain available, right? There's actually, this, this has become such a conundrum trying to decide where to go eat. That there's a new grill called I Don't Care Grill. So when your answer is, I don't care, <gasps> let's go there. Yeah? We're overwhelmed with choices. Peter Drucker, actually, who's like a leadership kind of guru, business guy, cultural kind of commentator, He said that when our history is written hundreds of years from now, looking back on this period of time, we think they're going to write about technology. He said, no, you're wrong. We think they're going to write about the smartphone. No, you're wrong. Or the internet. No, you're wrong. He said, what they're going to write about that radically and drastically changed our culture was that for the very first time, every person in the strata of basically every uh, economic level and caste system, I mean, all, all of us were overwhelmed and had the ability to make lots of choices about lots of things. All of us are going to make lots of choices about lots of things. He said, we are actually going to have to manage ourselves. And his conclusion is this, and I quote, society is totally unprepared for it. Maybe you just graduate high school and you're here at college and you're like, i got to make lots of choices. I'm totally unprepared for this. It's not just that it's an information overload. We also, it's not just that we have a lot of to- choices. It's also we have this thing called social media where we know everyone's opinion about all the choices that we have to make, <laughs> right? It's like everyone feels like their opinion needs to be heard, needs to be voiced so that the world can see it. And so on every issue that comes up, we feel like the weight of the world is on two separate sides of the issue. And we're either in one camp or another. You're either going to work out this way or not, eat nutrition this way or not. There's going to be opinions about if you're going to do vaccines or not vaccines, right? How you're going to paint your house or or how you're going to decorate or what cleaning chemicals you're going to use. There's opinions about every little choice that we have to make. And we carry this with us. Greg McCallan, in his book, he, ta- he says it's not just information overload, it's opinion overload. And then there's the American dream. This idea of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. It's, we want to have it all, don't we? We want to have it all right, and not in five years, not in ten years, not when we retire. We want it all right now. It's not just keeping up with the Joneses that live next door. It's keeping up with our 3,000 friends and followers on Facebook and Instagram. It's we see everything that they have and see what they do and the experiences. And we want all of it now. And we're busy. And we're distracted. And we're unfocused. 
We're moving from one thing to the next, from one decision to the next, from one opinion to the next. And what we need is focus. What we need is clarity in the confusion. We also are not just an unfocused culture. We are an unfocused church. We have been, and we still are an unfocused church. College Heights Christian Church. I'm talking about specifically here. This is not one person's fault or one staff member's fault or leadership team or elders or congregation. No, we all have to take ownership of the fact that we have become distracted. That we have missed the mark. Or we've, we've not stayed and had crystal clear clarity on what our mission is and what our task is. And we've got distracted with lots of things of, of trying to do it all and have it all and trying to appease every opinion that we hear. Currently today, we have 85 different ministry programs running. Not just one event, programs, multiple events, multiple streams of activities tied together. 85 different of those. Now, if it's true that 20% of the people do 80% of the work, 20% of us here are running primarily 85 programs. Those programs take and combat for facility usage and, and money and finances and staffing and volunteer time and resources. And we're distracted and we're being pulled apart by all of these programs. That doesn't even count the over 80 separate events that occur alongside the 85 programs. We have lots of activity going on. And we can't do it all. Yeah, we believe this. And I, this is one of those core convictions I have. That's just as core to who I am. The church of Jesus Christ, the leadership and the staff, the church, we exist to equip the saints, you all, to do the work God has called you to do in the world. Not in here. Not in our programs. The programs at the church should equip us and release us and empower us to go into the world and be the hands and feet of Jesus in a dark and dying world. That's the task. That's how it's supposed to work. And if we're too busy doing ministry programs and events and things, and this is, this is not just, this is not the congregation's fault or the staff's fault. It's our fault. We've done this. We've created this monster. And if we're too busy here doing these programs and these ministries that we don't have time to pray for and speak to and be hospitable to our non-Christian friends at work and at school or our neighbors, then we've missed the mark. We've done something wrong. Our mission at College Heights is to do this one thing. Here's our focus. Let me, let me bring clarity for you. It's this. To make disciples of Jesus who change the world. That's our mission. That's why we get up in the morning. That's why we eat food. Is for the food to energize us and empower us to do that work. That's why we have church. That's why we gather. That's why we have a staff. That's why we give. Is to accomplish that mission. But guess what? We have less left one of those words in that mission, undefined. We've let it become out of focus. And it's this word, disciple. If we're supposed to make them, we should know what they are. <laughs> right? Because if we don't know what they are, then there's no way we're going to accomplish our mission of making them. Okay, so about two years ago, the elders and ministerial staff, we got together for a whole school year, and we read through the entire New Testament together. We studied every verse of the New Testament, and we asked every verse these three questions about a disciple. What do disciples look like? What qualities do they possess? Number two, what activities are they engaged in? What do they do? 
And number three, how are they produced according to the New Testament? How do you make these disciples? And we took all that information, a whole school years of study and prayer, and we gave it to Shane Wood, one of our teaching ministers, and we worked with Shane, and he helped us kind of clarify our research into those three categories, and, and we answered them with kind of these eight themes, and then we boiled it all down through discussion and prayer and dialogue and going to conferences to this one basic definition of what it means to be a disciple. And it actually comes from Matthew 4.19, that first time where Jesus looked at Simon and his brother Andrew, and he calls them to be a disciple. It's this verse right here. Let me show it to you. It says this, Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Right there, inside that verse, inside that great invitation, is what is, is the definition of what a disciple is. It's these three parts. A disciple is someone who first follows Jesus. That's his invitation. Come follow me. Come live life like me. That's what they do. The second one is this, being changed by Jesus. Jesus says, I will make you. I will transform you. I will change you and make you into fishers of men. That's how they're produced. And then the third one was be on mission with Jesus. Okay, that's, that's what we are called to do together, on mission with Jesus. And that's when he says, I will make you what? Fishers of men. You're going to have a task. You're going to have a role. You're going to have a purpose to play in this earth. Take my gospel, my good news, to the farthermost, uttermost corners of the globe so that every person in every house, on every street, has a knowledge of the glory of the Lord like the waters covering the sea. That's, that's the mission that he has called us to. And that's the definition of a disciple. Someone who follows Jesus, who's being changed by Jesus, and who is on mission with Jesus. And so what is, hopefully, we're bringing in, we're, the next four weeks, we're going to hopefully bring in some focus on what it means to be a disciple. We're going we're gonna, to, like, like the eye doctor, we're going to help us see it clearer and better than before. But we also want to, like that archer, we want to align all of our ministries, all of our programs, everything that we do towards that one end. To not be distracted anymore as a church, but to be focused on the target of making disciples of Jesus who changed the world. And so the series, I'm going to show you a little bit of a, of a graphic. We're going to be filling in this graphic throughout this series, okay? So we're going to start right here. A disciple all hinges, I believe, on being changed by Jesus. I love that language because that doesn't mean that we're changed and we're done. It means that we are all in this process of being transformed and changed by Jesus into who he created us to be. And that's where we're, we're going to begin. And what, we, what I want to do is I want to invite you specifically to our Vision Sunday. September 8th. It's a couple of Sundays from now. It's a Sunday after Labor Day. And what we're going to do at Vision Sunday is we're going to talk about uh, at one big service at 1030 a.m., all of us in this room together. Okay. And we're going to have children's programming during that hour. And we want you to come. And we're going to talk specifically about what that means for us to be a church that's focused, that's on mission with Jesus, making disciples who change the world. Okay, so come, mark that on your calendars. And also, we have a special event. It's, a, it's called our Vision Rally. It's the Wednesday night before September 8th. It's the same Wednesday night as our youth uh, kickoff. But in this room on September 4th, Wednesday night at 6.30, we're going to invite any of our small group leaders, Bible school teachers, volunteers of any ministries, members of our church. And if maybe you like want to be like more engaged and, and, want, and want to be a member and want to volunteer, we want you to come too. That's fine. And we want to talk to you specifically. It's not the same service as Sunday. We want to rally around this mission and this vision and say, listen, this is your role as a small group leader, as a volunteer. As a, this is your role in helping us focus on that task and making disciples. So mark those on your calendars. Let me show you a little bit about what this looks like to be changed by 
Jesus, that this is kind of this foundational entry point into discipleship. Well, let me show you what this looks like. I'm going to take you to a story, an encounter with a guy that had accomplished all the things in his distracted culture that he wanted to accomplish. He made all the right choices. He mitigated all the opinions well, so much so that he rose to the very top of his society. And he had it all. According to that culture, I mean, he had it all. He was at the top. And the story begins in John chapter 3 with verse 1 and him coming to Jesus. Here's, here's a story. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Let me stop right there. This guy is, he, he's a big deal right off the bat. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. This is one of the most strictest sects of, 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 of that culture political group that were focused on following the law to a T. I mean, they followed it so much, they would actually put what they called the hedge about the law to where it's like, don't do this. Okay, we're not going to, in order that we don't lust after women, we're not going to even look around when we walk. Okay, and they would sometimes run into walls and doors and things because they would look down because they didn't want to break that law. They were so strict in what they did. It was very difficult to become a Pharisee, yet he is one of them. And he's not just a Pharisee. He's part of the, did you catch that? The Jewish ruling council. This is like the U.S. Senate of the Jews. Jews. I mean, this is like big deal. There's 70 of these guys that are part of what they call the Sanhedrin, made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. And you had to, I mean, you had to have a great reputation. You had to be kind of one of the top-notch groups of I mean, people in your group, influential, have a, the right network, the right relationships, in order to be sitting in that seat to represent the entire nation at the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. But he's one of those guys, Nicodemus, top of his field. And here he comes in verse 2. He came to Jesus at night, and he said this, Rabbi. Rabbi. That's a, that's a big word right there. It's a big word because from someone on the, the ruling council, saying to a homeless Jewish, a homeless um, uh, carpenter from Nazareth, from the backwoods of Galilee, calling him a respected honor title. You don't do that unless you respect and think that man deserves honor like Nicodemus does. See, he's been watching Jesus. I mean, check out what it says next. We know that you are a teacher who has come from God. We do. Who's we? It might be his disciples that are with him. He might be representing the whole Sanhedrin. We're not sure. But there's a group of people that believe that he's a teacher, that Jesus is a teacher that has come from God. Here's why. For no one could perform the signs you are doing. If God were not with him. Signs, that word is plural. Meaning, not just the one sign we've seen in the Gospel of John, the chapter before, where he turns water into wine at Cana and Galilee at a wedding. That's probably not the one he's talking about, because that happened up in Galilee. We know from the other Gospels, Jesus had done not just one sign, but multiple miraculous signs at this point. Healing a leper. All kinds of stuff. Actually, John tells us at the end of the Gospel, he said, Man, Jesus did a lot more signs than I recorded in my book. I wrote these ones down in my book so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You see, Nicodemus had seen and heard and witnessed all of this stuff that Jesus was doing. He was living life, what I'll call it, life around Jesus. He was watching from a distance, hearing reports, checking up on him, maybe even witnessing some stuff. Actually, some people think he is part of this group in chapter 2, verse 23, which says this. Many people saw the signs... He was performing and believed in his name. And chapter 3, verse 1 actually should probably start with the word and. And there was a Pharisee. Some commentators are saying, 
Nicodemus is part of those group of the people that group of people that saw him. He's been living life around Jesus, and he's been watching from a distance, saying, "There's something special about this guy." And I don't know about you. Maybe you have you are new to your faith. Maybe you've read one of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Maybe you've read some articles on Facebook and you're trying to discover like who Jesus is because everyone kind of talks about him a lot. Maybe this is your first time at church in a long time. And you feel like you're kind of trying to tip up, tiptoe up and, and, and view Jesus from a distance. And I'll tell you, that's, this is an appropriate step in your, in your discipleship and, and, follow, and figure out who Jesus is. You're going to have to come and look at him a little bit. But I'll tell you this. Life around Jesus will never bring you contentment. Kyle Eidelman, uh, who's author of a book called Not a Fan. Actually, Kyle Eidelman grew up at this church and was a student at College Heights Christian School. Went to be a pastor at Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky. He wrote a book called Not a Fan, which pits this idea of being fans of Jesus versus followers of Jesus. And when he was planning a church in California, he tells a story about a soap opera star named Rael Andrews who would come to church at their church that they planted um, in California. And he was on General Hospital, that soap opera show, and Kyle got to know him and walk alongside him as he was kind of developing and growing in his faith. And then finally, over the, you know, the months and year or two, Rael invited Kyle to speak at what this thing was called a gospel hour. And now a gospel hour is when Rael would invite a bunch of his fans from around the country to come. He'd rent out a, a big ballroom at a hotel, and they would have fun. He would sign autographs and do some fun activities, and then he would have his preacher come preach the gospel to his fans. And Kyle's like, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll be there. So Kyle shows up, and he was flabbergasted by what he saw. There were you know, hundreds of fans that were huge fans of Ray Al Andrews. And he came in, and they were doing a trivia hour. Which fan knows Ray Al best? Okay, and here's these people who've never met Ray Al before. And they're doing trivia, and they know things like the name of his dog and his cat and his you know, goldfish in third grade. They you know, know his, his siblings' names and where he loves to go on vacation and his food allergies. They know all this stuff about him. And Kyle had a moment where he's like, man, these people, first of all, he was like, this is kind of creepy. But second of all, he was like, these people know Rael way better than I do. And then he caught himself. And he's like, no, no, they don't. They know facts about him and about his life. They, 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 they live life around him, but they don't know him. They don't, they've not had coffee with him when he's lost a loved one. They've not prayed over him when he's been in his dark nights of his soul. They've not lived life with him answering questions about his faith or just having small talk on a regular Sunday. And Kyle said this, and I think this was just a fascinating point. He said that the problem isn't knowledge. The problem is that you can have knowledge without having intimacy. Oh, man, that's so true. Maybe you're not new to your faith. Maybe you've had faith for a long time. And maybe... Do you know a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot about Jesus? A lot of facts. You can tell him where he grew up. You can tell me the name of his dad. You can tell him how he died. You can tell me not only those little facts, you know, some events in his, his story, but you can tell me what chapter in what biography those events occur. But maybe you don't know him. You don't walk and step with him on a regular basis. Maybe he isn't transforming your life, you just kind of collect data in your mind. 
Let me ask you these three questions. This might be a little test to help you see if maybe you're living life around Jesus right now, but not being transformed by him lately. Number one, has Jesus changed your mind on how you think about something in the last year? Number two, has Jesus changed your behavior in relation to a specific sin in the last year? Number three, has Jesus changed the way you deal with your emotions in the last year? If your answer to all three of these questions is no, then you may be living life around Jesus and not being transformed by him. See, life around Jesus will never bring you satisfaction. It'll never be enough. And that's why Nicodemus goes to Jesus because life around him hasn't been enough. He's got to figure out who this guy is. He's got to learn more. He wants to draw closer to him, learn from him. And so this is Jesus' reply. Look at verse 3. It says this, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. You see, they have this little dialogue, Jesus and Nicodemus, between this, uh, around this idea of born again. It's two Greek words, and it could be translated one of two ways. It could be born again or born from above. It's this idea that, man, you yourself in your flesh cannot give birth to, flesh gives birth to flesh. Flesh can't give birth to spirit. Flesh can't make us new. You see, all of us fit into one of two categories, one of two camps. We're either dead in our faith, dead in our spirit, or alive. It's not good versus bad. No. We're either dead or alive. And Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you, you, the flesh just gives birth to more death. You've got to move from death to life. And, and I think Nicodemus can respond in one of two ways. The, the way he responds, we can take it in one of two ways. Because he says, how can I be born again? How can I, I crawl into my mother's womb and be born again? And we can take it this way that Nicodemus is literally asking, um, physically, Jesus, this doesn't make too much sense. I'm kind of old. My mom's kind of old. I don't think that's what Nicodemus is asking. I think Nicodemus is a pretty savvy guy. I think he's picking up what Jesus is laying down. I think Nicodemus is asking, you want me to start over? Because this word born again was the same word that was used, not first time by Jesus, but by actually Jews, talked about being born again. That actually when a pagan or a Gentile wanted to come and become a Jew and to worship Yahweh as God and become part of the Jewish faith and the, the Jewish race, that that pagan or that Gentile, that non-Jew person, would be born again. They would actually sit under the teaching of a, of a rabbi uh, on the Torah, and they would say that if they had learned the Torah, they would become a child, and the rabbi would become their father, and they'd be born again. They would enter into the waters of baptistry. The Jews would baptize people, and they would cleanse them, and they would actually give them a new birth, and they would start over. And Nicodemus is saying, who do you think you are? I'm one of the Jewish ruling council. I'm mature in my faith. I'm at the end. You're wanting me to go back to the beginning and start over? You know how long I've been living my faith out like this? Here's the reality. That no matter how long we follow Jesus, that all of us, in some way or another, we're still dead in our faith. There's, there's these two ideas. One of them is moving 
Uh, under, the, under the lordship of Jesus, when we say, Jesus, you are my Savior, you are my Lord, we move from the realm of dead, where we're just dead, we don't have the spirit inside of us, Jesus hasn't renewed us, he hasn't forgiven our sins, and we move from the realm of dead to the realm of the living. Okay, there's a big transition that we make. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you're saying, listen, I've never accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I've never been rescued from my sin. I've never placed my faith in him. I want to be made new. Jesus can do that today. I'd love to talk to you about that with you after service right up front. There's a big transition that happens there. But when we do do that, even when we live under the lordship of Jesus, man, we're still messed up and jacked up, aren't we? So often, even though we're living and we have the spirit inside of us, we drift back to the realm of the dead. We make decisions to hurt ourselves and those around us. John Ortberg calls this gap management. Let me put you up here a little chart. The idea is that there's the current me versus God's version of me. The current me, every single one of us, there is something wrong with us. If you don't know what that is, ask the people who came to church with you. They will tell you, okay? All of us, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all have something about our lives that is still dead, that needs to be resurrected from the dead, that needs to be made new, don't we? And man, maybe you're like, I, I think if every single one of us are honest with ourselves, you think into the dark corners of your soul, you know what that is. You know that you're not right right now. There's something off. But the good news of the gospel is God has a plan for you. You see, uh, I was walking along uh, the mall yesterday with uh, our kids um, because we needed to kill two hours before bedtime. Um, and uh, there, Chandler, uh, in the mall, there's these spots in the mall that kind of marks how long you've walked. If you want to walk, walk you know, a mile or in, at the mall. And the, each one of those spots is a graphic and it has a fox on it. And my daughter Chandler likes to say hi to the foxes. She's about one and a half. So we go to each one and she goes, hi. And then we go to the next one. Hi, it's great for killing time, okay? And so she's going around saying hi to the foxes, and so we're doing our path. And, I, you know, we're going back, and then all of a sudden I read the graphic, and I never read it before. But it's a fox on there, it's from Freeman Hospital, and it says, be the best version of you. They want us to be healthy, right? Work out, eat healthy, be the best version of you. The issue is we don't know what that is. We don't have focus and clarity on what the best version of me is. What do you mean by that? And so that's why our culture is so wrestling because we say, no, be just you, be who you are. But then we say, be the best version of you. And no one knows what that looks like. But guess who does? God does. Because God is our creator. He created every single one of us with a plan and an idea in mind that this is what life to the full looks like for you, John. It's what it looks like for you, Rachel. It's what it looks like for you, Ross. I just did Rachel and Ross. I didn't realize I did that. My wife's name is Monica and my daughter's name is Chandler. Okay, that's why. Um, man, I totally lost that moment. Okay, let's put the graphic back up. Let's keep going. Okay. Um, but God, God knows what that is. That's why there's God's version of me. God wants to move you. He wants to transform you to who he wants you to be, who he created you to be, what life to the full looks like for you. And the only way to move from me, the current me to God's version of me is his grace is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and he rose again. He put to death our guilt and our shame and our fear and all that stuff on the cross. We don't have to live with that anymore. We don't have to wrestle with that anymore when it comes to who we are. But we're forgiven. We're made new. We, our head is lifted by God. Amen. 
And so now we get to be transported, be transformed by Jesus' death and resurrection and the power of the Spirit to God's version of who we are, which reminds me of this, this last verse i got to talk about. I'm so sorry. Here we go. You're getting extra today. Verse 8, the wind blows wherever it pleases, Jesus says. You hear a sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. That verse, it's one word that's translated by wind and spirit. It's the Greek word pneuma. That the wind blows wherever it pleases. You can hear its sound. You don't know where it's going. You don't know where it's coming from. My mentor, Mark Moore, used to always say, the Holy Spirit does whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. Good luck with that. You see, we try and, we try and take care of that gap management between the current me and God's version of me. We try to do that like a canoe, like a kayak with an oar. I was going to use this, okay? So we get in our kayaks, and what we do is we think, okay, i got to be better. i got, I got to be God's version of me, not who I am today. And so we row, don't we? We row, and we row, and we row. And one side I call more, and one side I call better. And there's some area of our life that's deficient. we got to do more. i gotta, I got I to gotta serve my husband more. And i got to be better at, at loving him. i, I got to listen to my kids more. And i got to be better at paying attention to what they're saying. And I, I'm in so much debt. i got, I got to do more saving. And i got to be better in how we spend. And, man, I, 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 my faith is just so weak. i got, I got to read my Bible more. And i got to be better about prayer. And we just guilt and we shame and we row and we wear ourselves out trying to close the gap on our own. Right? And that's not what the that's not what Jesus teaches us. That's not what he says in Nicodemus. He doesn't say, let me tell you how to be born again. It's more and better. No, 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 no. He says, the wind blows where it pleases. It's not a kayak, it's a sailboat. He said, you get that mast up, you get the sail out. It's not you. You're not the engine that's driving your transformation. Oh no, 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 it's the spirit. You get that, get that sail out, and you watch the wind catch that sail. And that ship take off. And you're riding the waves, and you don't know where it's going, and your routines get all jacked up, right? Corey Scott, Mark Scott's son, he says, that roots, make sure your routines are routes to God, not ruts. That's good. That'll preach. You got to get that sail up, and you, and you watch how God moves in an unpredictable, un, you never know what that's going to look like. But guess what? It's going to take you to where God wants you to go. Not to where you want to go. Not where you think you need to go. Not where the opinions of the world says you need to go. But no, where God knows that you need to go for your life. To have life to the full. Get in. Be filled with the Spirit is what Paul says in Ephesians 5 verse 18. It's not a ceasing of activity. You don't just wait and say, hey, good God, solve all my problems. No, you've got to do some work to put yourself in a position to receive the Spirit's work in your life. That's why these traditional disciplines of, 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 of reading the Bible and getting close to the Word of God and, and, and putting yourself in the presence of God and prayer and the liturgy, coming and worshiping God. Liturgy literally just means the worship, the, the regular, the routines of worship that we go through. We come and we do that and we take the Lord's Supper to put ourselves in a position to receive the Spirit's work, transformational work in our lives. Guys, this is what it means to focus. I'm being a disciple, making other disciples. It's realizing that we can't close this gap on our own with more and better. Ronald Reagan, he wrote these following words to his dying father-in-law. He said this, We have been promised that all we have to do is to ask God in Jesus' name 
to help when we have done all that we can. When we have come to the end of our strength and abilities and we will have that help. We only have to trust and have faith in this, in his infinite goodness and mercy. See, Reagan's father-in-law was a neurosurgeon and an atheist. And President Reagan was the most powerful man on the planet when he wrote that in 1982. So you have, you have here one man who's full of power and influence and is skilled at a very rare craft, writing to another man in a similar situation, saying, you can't do it alone. you got to have help. And more and better doesn't work. you got to have help. It's not about bad people becoming good. It's about dead people becoming alive. I didn't know how to end this sermon until this morning. And the Lord gave me a passage and a picture. So I'm going to ask all of you to close your eyes. And if you're new to, if you're new to church, new here, I promise you nothing's going to happen when you close your eyes. It's not like we have a, like water, like a spl- there's no splash zone. You're safe. Okay, I promise. Um, but I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to just listen to my voice and try and just and put your hands out in front of you with your palms up to the, uh, up, up to the uh, ceiling. And I just want you to listen to my voice. Not as if it's my voice like Cy Huffer talking, but that this is the voice of God, okay? Because I want to read something that he, he wrote to a church to deal with this issue. And I want to read it to you this morning. And I want you to receive this message. Receive this message not as if it's just a a thing that you heard on Sunday, but as a message from God to you in this moment of your life. Maybe you're totally dead. You live in the realm of the dead. You need to be rescued. You need to be resurrected. You need to be made alive. Maybe there's one area of your life that you know is rotting. Bring that to the forefront of your mind. And listen to these words. As for you, you were dead. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving but because of his great love for us because of my great love for you me being rich in mercy I made you alive with Christ even when you were dead in transgressions it is by grace, my grace, you have been saved. And I raised you up with Christ and seated you with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages I might show the incomparable riches of my grace expressed in my kindness to you in Christ Jesus. For it is by my grace, my grace, you have been saved through faith. And this isn't from yourselves. No, it's my gift. It's my gift not by works so that no one can boast for you. You are my handiwork. I created you in Christ Jesus to do good works, which I prepared. I prepared in advance for you. 